listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Good afternoon and uh, welcome to another Walker webcast. It's uh, my great pleasure to have Richard Baker joining me today. Let me do a quick intro on Richard and then uh, we'll dive into our conversation. Richard Baker, Governor, Executive Chairman and CEO of Hudson Bay Company, is an experienced entrepreneur, business executive, and visionary in the retail and real estate industries. HBC is a holding and investment company of distinct North American retail and real estate operating businesses, including Hudson's Bay, Saks Fifth Avenue, Saxaw Fifth, and HBC Properties and Investments. Mr. Baker is also chairman of Retail Opportunity Investment Corporation, ROIC, and owner of National Realty and Development Corporation, NRDC. He's a graduate of Cornell University and has served on many boards at Cornell. Richard, it is a real pleasure to have you with me today. Let me back up for a moment here. So you grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut, and you went to Brunswick, then you went to Cornell. All that sounds like, if you will, kind of a pretty standard upbringing for a successful banker, consultant, or real estate professional who grew up in the New York suburbs. But by your own admission, you weren't your typical Brunswick boy. You set up your own catering business in high school. You pride yourself on being creative and, and almost artistic in how you live your professional and personal lives. Where did that independent streak come from? And what adult supported you in that journey? I guess we're all born with what we're born with. You know, this, this whole concept that we can guide our kids and guide our uh, the young people that we mentor, we can but they're all born with what they're born with. And I was never a great student. And my passion and my pleasure was, you know, being an entrepreneur and thinking about uh, how to make money and how to do things differently. I kind of walked around my whole life just seeing differently than other people see. And when I look at a building or I look at a business or I spend time with someone, I kind of see things differently, I guess, than other people do. And sort of early on in my life, I thought there was maybe something wrong with me because I, you know, we spend our whole, you know, our whole system is based on educating young people to be the same as everyone else. So one plus one is always two. George Washington's always the first president. Uh, mixing uh, red and yellow will always get you orange. So thinking when you come out of a you know 20 years plus of that kind of um, training, imagining that thinking differently than everyone else is a good thing takes a little bit of time. And it took a little bit of time for me as well. But I guess to that, all of those are are facts. Like, you know, George Washington was the, the first president of the United States, always will be the first president of the United States. But you seem to not 
disregard the facts, but take a different path. So that entrepreneurial spirit, I mean, setting up your own catering company in high school, I mean, what was it that said to you, hey, that'd be a great idea? I mean, there's some entrepreneurial spark that comes. My my eldest son likes tuning cars. Where was it that you got that spark to say, hey, I either like food or I want to go make money or there's an opportunity here that I see isn't being met? I think um, for me, we all need to uh, feel good about ourselves. And I wasn't a great athlete or anything. So uh, I wasn't, you know, all excited to go to soccer practice. And I wasn't a great student. So that wasn't a place that my ego and I could excel. And but I was good at organizing people. And I was good at getting ideas executed. And I was good at turning a dollar. So I did what came naturally to me and what I felt good doing. And um, I grew up in a real estate family. So, you know, on weekends, my father would drive me to a shopping center that he was developing and we'd, you know, walk the construction job or go visit uh, a piece of property he was going to buy and uh, we'd wear hard hats and whatever. And so I spent a lot doesn't of my doesn't sound time. like doesn't sound like that really turned you on. I mean, so that's that that wasn't terribly attractive to you, is that right? No, I, I enjoyed the real. I always enjoyed the real estate business, and I still do. But by the time I graduated Cornell, I was you know ten years older than my peers in you know understanding the real estate business. You know, as many, you've interviewed many people in the real estate business, it's very much a tribal, traditional kind of business where the lessons of the past are handed down from one generation to the next. So uh, that was definitely um, part of my upbringing. Also, you know, I talk about the operating businesses that we run often, that they're, the operating businesses that we run are being run through a real estate brain. Real estate people think differently about risk reward and process and um, operating company people think very differently. So all of the operating companies, I had a long career in real estate, but when I got into operating, you know, and owning and, and running um, operating companies, everything we look at and do is through the lens of how a real estate guy would think. So I want to get to Opco, Propco in a moment. But when you went to Cornell, you went to the hotel management school, and I've heard you say that we're all in the hospitality business, whether you're actually having someone stay at your hotel and trying to generate rev par, or whether you're trying to, we'll go back to the example of my son tuning cars. If you have a car tuning shop, you're still in the, in the hospitality, if you will, or the service industry. Talk for a moment about what the salient lessons you learned having studied hospitality at Cornell that's helped guide your career? As a youngster, when I was 12 or 13, I was cooking and I would cook for my family and I cook for my friends because I'm a pleaser. I like to make people happy. And still, when I travel with big groups or, or whatever, I'm the one moving the food around. I'm the one ordering. I'm the one organizing the food, travel, transportation. So that's a core hospitality. Being a pleaser is a hospitality trait. Where it really came out and blossomed in my head was when I graduated from Cornell and I went into the real estate business and my father said, here's a little office for you. Go do anything you want. Don't sign your name to anything. Don't uh, spend any money. I went and back in those days and still today, you know, New York City or city real estate developers 
they're very tough and difficult because generally speaking, they don't do repeat customer business. They have this one corner and this one drugstore only wants to be on that corner. And they'll probably never do another deal with that one drugstore again. Certainly back 30 years ago when there wasn't chains of everything, everybody was, you know, three of these and 10 of those. So real estate people were really difficult and the absolute epitome of not hospitality. Very difficult people. Still are some of the big names that you know in New York and places like that. When I graduated from the hotel school, we had some broken down shopping centers that their tenancy, you know, the anchors had expired and, and what have you. And I went to this nice company that had no stores east of the Mississippi called Walmart. And they were just starting to expand east. And I began, I was 21 years old, very service. How can I help you? How can I take care of you? And I went back to my father and my uncles and said, I have this deal for a Walmart. Here's their lease and let's do it. And my uncles and my father were like, oh, forget their lease. Let's use our lease. And we're never going to give them that clause and tell them no. And this is the way we do. I go back to my uncles and my father. I'm like, who cares? The shopping center is empty. You have it on your books for nothing. It paid back the mortgage. It's just, what do you care? Let me play with these guys and see if I can make a Walmart deal and we'll do it all their way for once. They said, you're right. Who cares? Do whatever you want. So went back, signed their seven page lease for 120,000 square foot building. And I developed this relationship with Walmart where crazy but we were like nice to them and we made sure that the paint was right and not just one, not just your spec, but it was done right. And we created a relationship and I ended up having a relationship with Sam and his son, Rob, and uh, we built 40 Walmart shopping centers, all of which we still own today. And it was because I did things their way, not my way. And I, was willing to walk in their shoes and understand their perspective. And for me, I brought hospitality in my world to real estate at a time where I promise you in 1989, there wasn't a lot of hospitality in the real estate business. So most people who developed 40 Walmart anchored shopping malls would put their feet up on the table and say, man, that was great work. I hopped on. I got in there early. I made a relationship with now the largest retailer in the United States, saw that coming and boy, aren't the rents coming off of that great. And I also know that you use very, very little equity capital as you built up that incredible retail portfolio of uh, Walmart anchored shopping centers. But your wife, Lisa, I believe, had a big hand in saying to you, you've always dreamed of playing on the opco side, not just the prop co side. What was it that Lisa either had heard you ruminating about or encouraged you to do that got you to say, it's time to move out of being just a property owner and becoming an operating company runner or CEO or executive or? We were building a million square feet a year. It was 2005. And we had a big organization, million square feet in and out. But it was getting a little scary, like, I wasn't sure we could keep up this pace. The environmental laws, people weren't loving Walmart at that moment. And I was concerned about the future and all these people that I had working. And we lived in Greenwich, Connecticut, which is home to all these private early days in 2005, lots of little private equity firms and hedge funds 
we call them little today, but they were big for that moment. They were all $200 million kind of funds and what have you. And a lot of them were our friends and we'd go out to dinner, friends of our kids and whatever. And in the car on the way home, my wife would always say, you're as smart as Harry. Why does he have a $200 million private equity firm and, uh, and you're building strip shopping centers? So every successful uh, person needs a partner that uh, kicks him in the, uh, in the tush every now and then. So I had a deal I was working on, which was I wanted to buy Toys R Us. So I had a team, we were working on it. And I went to my uh, father and I said, um, let's buy Toys R Us. It's whatever it was, $3 billion or what have you. And prop go, op go, the whole thing. And he said, what are you, crazy? Why would we, buy? you know, we're shopping center people. You know, we don't do anything different than shopping centers. So I said, all right, whatever. So I go home and I tell my wife that Lisa, that what my father said, she says, forget that, you know, go to one of our friends and uh, buy Toys R Us with a partner and you don't need to do it uh, with your father if that's, if, if it doesn't interest him. So I go back the next day and I say to my father, you know what? No worries about the Toys R Us thing. I'm going to partner with one of my friends and Oh, that's, you know, my father didn't like that idea at all. He's like, well, why don't you go talk to our friends, Bill Mack and Lee Nybart, who have a company at that time called Apollo Real Estate, which was partners with the regular Apollo. Anyway, we created a new, a new entity called NRDC Equity Partners. We got outbid for Toys R Us and the very smart and talented Bain and Bornado and, and others bought it. And we went on to, of course, buy Lord & Taylor, but that's how it really kind of got going. So talk about the Lord & Taylor acquisition, because you bought it for a billion two. Interestingly, the three banks that financed it for you, not one of them is still in business. I guess you could potentially say that CIT became Reorg reorganized, yeah. reorganized and, and so there. But I mean, you got a 90... What was it? I haven't done the math on it. 99.9%. No, no, not quite that. 90, like 97. 97% loan to cost loan came up with $25 million of equity capital to go buy Lord & Taylor in 2006. Obviously, hindsight's 2020 vision, Richard, in the sense that 2006 was sort of a the heyday for lending. So you couldn't have, you know, wait, do that earlier or do that later. You couldn't have actually bought it. So there was something really opportune about accessing the debt markets at that point. But given that we had the GFC coming right around the corner, once you had it, did you all of a sudden two or three years later say, uh, what did we do in 2006 as far as buying Lord & Taylor? Well, a couple of comments. One, you got to be in the game. So people who make deals and people who accomplish great things, they're constantly trying and they're constantly working on things and they're constantly not being successful. Couldn't get that deal done. We tried for maybe small failure, small failure. And, but every now and then they get it right and they have a big win. And no one is smart enough to understand that this is the beginning of and the end of and this cycle and that cycle. But if you're always uh, hanging out by the hoop and uh, playing the game, then um, you'll make your share of uh, baskets. So uh, we just got lucky. First of all, my family's philosophy was we're in the infinite return business and we're not investors. We're value creators, we're developers. So we create value with intellectual leverage, not with liquidity, not with uh, using our money. And when we bought Lord & Taylor, 
we basically got a purchase agreement subject to uh, the due diligence, which was basically a free option, no different than when we buy a piece of land for a shopping center. And we got the financing done because, of course, as you said, it was 2006. And we made the very difficult decision, Bill Mack, Lee Nybart, my father and I, to write a check for $25 million. That was a lot of money for us and then and what have you to buy that business. So, and of course, we had a very nice run with that business. And then the financial crisis uh, hit. We kept maneuvering. So we pivot and we maneuver. And um, in that case, we made some modifications to our debts, rethought about how to operate the business. And we worked our way through that period of time. And then we bought the Hudson's Bay Company and merged that together. So we are sort of quick pace, real time operators that take advantage of good situations and are able to, as capably as possible, maneuver through difficult periods. Richard, am I, am I right in that the premise for buying Hudson Bay was the thought that the Canadian market needed a middle to upscale retail kind of service offering that Saks had and that you were going to take essentially the Saks operating platform and push it into Hudson Bay. Is that is that correct on why you went into Hudson Bay in 2008? No, we had owned Lord & Taylor. We bought- Sorry, I'm sorry. I meant Lord & Taylor, not Saks. My bad. I'm sorry. We're taking owned- Lord & Taylor and pushing it into the Hudson Bay footprint. Well, it's a couple of things. First of all, it's a bit of a story about fresh eyes. So when I went to visit and spent a lot, tremendous amount of time in Canada, they had 288 Zeller stores and they had tremendous department store buildings in Vancouver and Toronto and Montreal. And they had tremendous assets that coming from my East Coast US perspective, remember in the East Coast, we saw all of our real estate in the East Coast go from the days of Nichols, Neisner's, Zayers, Ames, Caldor, Bradley's, Pathmark, A&P, and they transitioned into Walmart, Target, Lowe's, Home Depot. So they went from no credit to credit. And my bet was that there was an opportunity in Canada for a very no credit retail landscape to turn into a credit landscape. And that was the bet. And I believe the real estate in Canada was worth you know, $5 billion. I was right. $5 billion. And uh, we were buying the entire company for $1 billion, 200 Canadian. And the Canadians laughed at me. They thought this was the stupidest thing ever because there had been some other department store businesses in Canada that went out of business and no one ever figured out what to do with the real estate. So they thought these multi-level department store businesses had no value. So we were the absolute right buyer because we knew how to run a department store and we were comfortable taking on the risk associated with running a Hudson's Bay department store business because we ran Lord and Taylor. Also, we were very capable in creating monetization moments for the real estate portfolio, which we did. And um, the Hudson Bay company has been one of the, you know, it's been a tremendous investment for us. And there's a lot more runway ahead of us. Hudson Bay was founded in 1670 and is the oldest continuous business operating in North America. That's really cool. Is there any value to that, Richard? So, sure. So, first of all, great companies have culture. 
great companies have DNA. And the culture and DNA of Hudson's Bay was very similar to my family and to my history. And the Hudson Bay Company was a company built by adventurers, people who had the courage to get in a very small boat and go from Scotland or England or Europe at the time and go across the world in a little wood boat to the Hudson's Bay and do a sign up for a two-year assignment to trade beaver pelts with the First uh, Nations people. And what did that entail? And that kind of risk-taking, courageous DNA has been living inside of Hudson's Bay and reproducing and existing for 352 years. And that DNA is how we run our business today. We are thoughtful adventurers who take understandable, quantifiable risks, and we maneuver and we do things no one else in the world does. I mean, whether it was going to Germany to buy the largest department store chain in Germany or, or selling off our Zellers business to uh, Target or buying Saks Fifth Avenue, we have a very adventurous entrepreneurial spirit at HBC, which comes from our 352 years of history. Talk for a moment about, I mean, you just mentioned that being in the real estate business, you know, the typical, particularly East Coast real estate developer, this is my corner, get a tenant, work with that tenant for the period of time, swap that tenant out for somebody else, on I go, not very service oriented, and then also not... I mean, obviously, there are very scaled real estate platforms that are operating companies, but nothing to the degree of HBC, which now has 49,000 employees in it. Talk about your own leadership as you went from running a, you know, a scaled real estate platform, but really being known for the dirt, if you will, more than the operations and the service to then going in and becoming the leader and the CEO of a very, very large scale services organization in both Lord and Taylor into Hudson Bay. It was shocking. So, because I, as to your point, I was a deal guy. I made deals. I leased space to tenants. I, you know, uh, I had a team that built out the buildings. I was a deal guy, relatively small number of people. And I quickly figured out that the only way. I mean, you know, uh, when we bought Lord & Taylor, it had 10,000 employees. How do you communicate? How do you drive a culture with 10,000 people? And I quickly, you know, uh, all of us who, you know, are students of business and what have you, we read all the books and we hear about leadership and culture and, you know, whatever, they're kind of words, but it's real. (laughs) So uh, when you find, when you wake up one day in that chair the only way to function is to create a culture at your company and or to nourish an existing culture or to replace a bad culture. We've done it all because we bought and assimilated a lot of companies. And the only way to be a successful large organization is to have a culture where people understand the big plan. And we see often bad things that happen in bad culture companies. And it's not surprising. It's from, I mean, I can tell the culture of a company. I can call the CEO of any company and tell you in 10 minutes before I even meet or talk to the CEO what the culture of the company is. If his assistant is nasty or short 
or acts a particular way, you know that's the way the boss is. And if that's the way the boss is, it's all the way down the organization. And if you call the assistant and she's super, doesn't know who you are, but treats you very nicely and is courteous and hospitable, then you know the DNA of that company. And um, it's all about culture and, and being a leader to drive the culture. And there's no other way of doing it. It's impossible to run these big businesses without having the right, you know, the right philosophy and the right culture. On the leadership role at HBC, you have the title governor. I thought you, at least in the States, you sort of have to run to run a state to get that title. What's the governor title? As I'm assuming it's a Canadian title as it's like, it's like CEO or board member chairman. What's I've never seen the governor title before. It's very unusual. So in, in Canada, so King Charles II in 1670 signed a charter giving all the lands that drain into the Hudson's Bay to the Hudson's Bay Company, which its first governor and owner was Rupert, the uh, cousin of King Charles II. And any company in Canada that was started by charter from the King of uh, England, the leader of that company is known as the governor. There's only two companies left and, you know, I am the 39th governor of the Hudson's Bay Company, and that's a Canadian thing, if you will. That is super cool. I mean, that does play to the sort of, you know, there's something to the history and, and sort of the value of the history. That's that's really fascinating. So in 2013, Richard, you go and you buy Saks. You bought it for 2.5. Uh, no, it had 2.5 billion in sales at the time. Talk for a moment about the Saks acquisition having bought Lord and Taylor and then Hudson's Bay and, and bringing it all together and, and seeing what was working or not working in those first two platforms and what made you go to Saks? So we have become very energized at that point at basically the prop go op go concept. And when we underwrote and analyzed the value of Saks, to us, they had a portfolio of real estate that was worth a lot more, materially more than we were able to purchase it. So at that point, we were already pulling these companies apart and having operating companies and brick and mortar companies. So for us, uh, Saks was a great brand. It was the number two uh, luxury franchise in the United States. There was Neiman's uh, and Bergdorf's. There was uh, Saks and there was Barney's. And on the month in 2013 that we bought it, our sales were two and a half billion dollars, the, the platform we bought. And Neiman Marcus was six billion at that moment. Had TPG bought Neiman Marcus by then? TPG had sold Neiman Marcus to CPP and Aries. And over the next uh, seven or eight years, the two companies did their thing. And by 2020 or whatever it was during the pandemic, Neiman Marcus sold for six billion dollars. The entire capital structure in Neiman Marcus was wiped out and they went bankrupt and $6 billion was lost during the pandemic. They then reorganized. And, you know, in a year like this, they'll end up the year, that whole franchise at something like, you know, $4.8 billion of sales down from their original six. Saks, which we bought and had a $2.5 billion franchise, the end of this year, we'll have a $6.4 billion business. So we went from two and a half to 6.4, and Neiman's went from six to 
4.6 or 4.7, whatever it'll be. So we're very proud. And of course, uh, Barney's is gone. So we're, we're very proud of uh, the uh, success and the growth that we accomplished at Saks. And then, of course, not only did we split it to a prop go op go, but then in uh, the beginning in March of 2021, we split the digital business out from the brick and mortar operating business. So now we have a PropGo, OpGo, DigCo, and now we have three separate businesses. You were thinking about taking that digital platform on SACS public this past spring. I'm assuming because of what the markets have done, you held back on doing that. But splitting them up and taking one to be public and holding on to the actual, if you will, old school bricks and mortar retail, what was the thinking behind that? Just valuation or there was something you could do in a public format with the digital platform that you can't do in a private network? I would say it differently. So when I had the real estate, the operating company and the digital businesses all locked up in one entity, the world expects you to make EBITDA dollars and you get a multiple based on EBITDA dollars. Except we live in a world where I have to compete with real estate companies, I have to compete with brick and mortar operating companies, and most importantly, I have to compete successfully with other standalone digital companies. And I wasn't able to properly finance and fund three separate businesses, having them all be one. So by splitting them up into three separate companies, I was able to properly invest in the digital business the way you know a competitor that was digitally only could invest. And in the brick and mortar operating company, I could better show the EBITDA and better invest in that business. And of course, the real estate is a different way of evaluating and understanding the value there. So my goal is always to run best in class businesses. And what we're learning is splitting apart these businesses into three separate companies, which of course we did again with SaxOffit.com, SaxOffit uh, uh, operating business in their real estate. And again, we did it in Canada, where we have three separate entities in Canada. So let me try and pull this apart a little bit, Richard, if I, if I can, only because I'm fascinated about what you're doing as it relates to, if you will, point of sale, digital versus bricks and mortar. And before I put the example I want to dive into at this moment on the table, because we'll get to this in a moment, but your Streetworks Development Group, which built, for instance, Bethesda Row, that many people who've been to Bethesda, Maryland know is just an incredibly, back when you built it, a very new concept as it relates to retail. And so I want to hold that out there for a moment as I ask you this. If I go to Chevy Chase, Maryland, there's a Neiman Marcus right at the DC Maryland line. And there's a Saks Fifth Avenue down the street a little bit on the right-hand side and both big box. I think the Neiman Marcus is now closed. And my question to you would be in that format, here's Chevy Chase, Maryland, an incredibly affluent high-end neighborhood suburb of Washington, DC, which was the retail center of suburban Maryland. And you've got these two big boxes there of Neiman's and Saks. Can you make those work in today's retail world, or do you have to go and transition to both what you did at Bethesda Row, and then we'll go to what you're doing with Saks out in Beverly Hills? But I I just want to stick with Chevy Chase for a moment, because I look at those two buildings and just wonder whether that format is a thing of the past, or whether you can actually revitalize them and make money out of them. Okay. So every day I'm asked, what do you think of the 
you know, uh, discount uh, world or the grocery world or the mid-tier retail or department stores or specialty stores, uh, vertical, uh, you know, online only, brick and mortar. There are winners and there are losers. So every single category any of us could imagine, there are certain people who do a better job than other people. And there's people that are going to do great and go a long way. And there's people, there are people who are just not going to be successful. So we don't believe any of that conversation that there's no brick and mortar going forward and that people don't like department stores or mid-tier or high-end. That's I can give you an example in every single category of expertly operated and very profitable businesses in every category. We wake up every day in order to deliver our customer a spectacular product, treat our associates with respect and teach them how to be entrepreneurs and nourish them and to be great partners with our vendors or anyone that we're partners with. And that's what we think about every day. And that's what we have done, use Saks for an example, nonstop since 2013 when we bought Saks. That is how our sales have gone from two and a half billion to 6.4 billion by just doing that consistent management team. We haven't changed and flipped and flopped consistent business plan. And that's our recipe and that's our philosophy. And um, I'm very bullish on all the different things that were working. And sometimes businesses don't work in our portfolio anymore. We sold off Lord and Taylor prior to the pandemic, the operating business, and we sold off Zellers to Target in Canada. And, you know, we'll edit the garden, but we uh, make long-term commitments to the businesses we own. Also, we're not a private equity firm. We're not fixing and selling and duct taping or whatever. We're not a public company. We're just long-term entrepreneurs and owners that want to deliver a great product to our customers and do the right thing every day. And um, I think we show that that is a good, a roadmap for success. So on that, just to push on that a little bit, the, you know, Lord and Taylor, you sold their flagship store in New York to WeWork at a incredible valuation and hats off to you for doing so. And yet the Saks store that you have on Fifth Avenue, I was just there this past week, what you've done to keep that store relevant is unbelievable, including having Elton John come and play a concert. And there are more people today, Richard, looking at your store every night than are looking at the tree in Rockefeller Center. They literally look across the street for the show that happens on your store rather than looking down at the, at the tree. And it's really quite something. I mean, you've created a real just an event that happens every single night there on Fifth Avenue. And by the way, I don't know how you got the city of New York to shut down Fifth Avenue on Sundays, but you've turned it into a walking mall, which is really quite something. But so talk for a moment there, though. I mean, you clearly in Saks have a great brand that's got a lot of vibrancy to it. In Lord & Taylor, you made the decision that the real estate was worth more than the operating company. You sold the real estate for a whole lot, and then you turned around and sold the operating company of Lord & Taylor for a smaller sum, but you still sold it off. Why was one working and the other one not? Because again, we live in a world where there's winners and losers, and the economic model around the Saks Fifth Avenue business, whether it's digital, brick and mortar, or the real estate portfolio, it's a big winner and lots of opportunity and growth and market share ahead of it. Lord & Taylor stuck between Macy's and Nordstrom and all the issues that they had 
was not a long-term hold for us. And so in selling the Lord & Taylor uh, flagship store to WeWork, you took a real look at co-working, flexible office space, what have you. And you're now a, a, a very significant investor in Convene, and you have Aries as a partner in there. What makes you feel, if you will, that there's a real opportunity for that shared workspace model today that didn't quite work out for WeWork? First of all, Convene is really is a 90% meeting space business. So it's only like 10% shared workspace, which is totally different. So what's happening is we've spent a lot of time thinking about and developing our premise for the future of work starting before the pandemic. And the future of work, as we know, less people in the office in some companies, uh, more meetings, more regional meetings, more get-togethers. So we're bullish and we invested in a big way in Convene in order to take advantage of the opportunity for companies who want to do offsite meetings. So we think there's a lot of growth ahead of us to convene at uh, regional and suburban and major market meeting opportunities. Fascinating. And so as you think about that, as it relates to convene and bringing people together on the office side, you're also taking your your second flagship store at Saks out in Beverly Hills, and you're converting it from being one flagship store to actually being more of, I mean, back to that, what we were talking about previously of what you did in Bethesda Row of sort of having more of a, a walking area. And I, I actually, Richard, was really happy and surprised that the architect of my home in Sun Valley, Idaho, Marmel Radzinger, is actually working with you on that design and development of what you're going to do there. Talk for a moment about what you're doing there to, to transition from a traditional retail setting to, if you will, a more forward-looking retail setting that is mixed use. Yeah. So what we did was we're moving the men's store is in one building. The women's store is next door. We're moving the women's store into the former Barney space, which is under construction. It'll be opened uh, you know, uh, later in 2023. And it'll be a beautiful women's store and a beautiful men's store. That left two parking lots and the old department store. And we have a beautiful plan to invest tremendous sum of money in a project that's going to have private, uh, it's going to have overnight rooms, going to have a club, private or public, I don't know. It's going to have all kinds of um, market, it's going to have luxury maker entrepreneurial space that and restaurants and food and beverage and you know, food outlets, all kinds of different things. And we're working with the community and to design something that they like. And uh, it's going to be great for the Saks brand. It's going to be great for the community. And uh, we're very excited about it. It's innovative and exciting, something that's uh, been a hallmark of your career. Two final things. First one is mental health. I know you and your wife, Lisa, are very focused on it, but it's also not just a personal interest, but it's something that you put inside of um, Hudson Bay. You have a chief mental health officer, which, to be honest with you, I, I don't know that I know of another company that has a chief mental health officer. Talk for a moment about that, because it, it, it seems to be a part of Lots of people talk about wellness. They talk about, you know, going to a yoga class, smoking cessation, taking care of yourself physically. But the mental health side is such an important component, particularly post-pandemic and the challenges that many, many employees are dealing with getting either back to the office, being online, being able to be an engaged member of their work community. How helpful has it been to have a chief mental health officer and have had as such a 
sort of defining characteristic of the Hudson Bay companies that you really focus on that part of it? So about, I don't know what it was now, six years, six or seven years ago, and for a period before that, we have all these companies, we have all these associates, we have a lot of leverage in the community, and we were thinking, our team here at HBC, my wife, Lisa, and I, we all were thinking and planning, how could we have the biggest impact on our community, our associates, our uh, our customers, the people in the communities that we spend a lot of time in, what could we do to be helpful and make a significant contribution? And what we came up with was mental health. And how do we make people more aware of not only the problems of mental health, but what the solutions are? And at that time, it was not a thing that people talked about. And um, we've spent and other people have spent a lot of time and energy educating the world about what to do when someone in your family suffers from depression or anxiety or, uh, or has an addiction. So we have kind of very focused and very thoughtfully, uh, teams of all of our companies have spent a lot of time engaging in mental health and uh, raising money and participating in the community on that topic. It's been our associates are very proud and very engaged in this effort. It's something that exists in every family. There's not one family in uh, all the people that all of us here right now know that doesn't have some mental health issues in their family or that they have to deal with, whether it's a child or a cousin or a parent. And um, we're putting together the toolkit in order to help people. We've connected with all kinds of different people in order to get smarter. And we're trying and we're playing with different scenarios of how to provide more guidance to our associates and more guidance to our community on this topic. So I would say it's a work in progress. We're very, um, we feel good about what we've accomplished, but we think there's a lot more we can do ahead of us. Pretty evident, Richard, that you have been exceedingly successful at both um, creating value at at certain brands and and, and getting rid of other value uh, brands, such as Nautica, for instance, was one of the brands that you shut down and said that one doesn't have any more value for us. As you look a great, forward, a great brand just wasn't it wasn't the right brand for us at that time. As you look forward to twenty three, a lot of people are trying to do planning in a higher interest rate environment. The threat of a a recession in two thousand and twenty three. As you your outlook, not not specifically to you and Hudson's Bay, but more generally on retail. What's your outlook for twenty three and twenty four? Are you still quite bullish on retail done right? And if so, any kind of guidance as it relates to the areas where you see some opportunity without giving us your playbook, which I'm assuming you don't really want to give away on this webcast. So um, consumer demand. So this is uh, December two thousand and twenty two. Consumer demand continues to hold up and especially for our luxury businesses. Consumers have jobs, they have money to spend, they might want to buy more on sale, they might not want to be as uh, you know uh, full price as maybe they were last year. But obviously, we're long-term bullish on retail and luxury and special experiences and special product. Our job is to continue to figure out how to uh, manage our assets and our marketing and our data in a way that continues to uh, gain market share. We think we have a great long-term opportunity to pick up market share, which we will. Next year, because that real estate brain is thinking, 
We're going to bring down the risk a little bit and make sure that we're more conservative going into 2023 because who knows? And um, we have to make a lot of these buying decisions early in the year. So 2023 will be a good year to be as conservative as possible. But I'm feeling good and I'm very optimistic about the future uh, of our businesses. And look, I'm bullish on the United States and I'm bullish on what, uh, what the opportunities are here. Final question. They called Sir Elton John's visit to sing that song a surprise visit. Had that been in the works for a long time or did he get done with his North American tour and all of a sudden things kind of aligned and he showed up to sing that song? He had this itch to come visit his favorite store in uh, North America and that was Saks Fifth Avenue. And uh, he said, will you close Fifth Avenue down for me so I can come and do something special? And we figured out how to get it done. And uh, it was a spectacular evening and uh, we really appreciate what he did. And we were really happy that we were able to contribute a million dollars to the good works that he does. And it was a win-win-win for everybody. A win for New York, a win for Saks, and a win for uh, Foundation. So it was a great night. I really, I have to tell you, from having been there for a week right around your store, it has become the site. And uh, it's quite something that people walk, take a quick look at the Christmas tree and then sit there and wait for the music to start up and the light show to go. So many congratulations to you and your team on creating quite a scene to anybody who's going to New York for the holidays. Do not miss it because it's really worth watching. Richard, uh, a real pleasure. Thank you for spending the time with me. Congrats on all you have built and all you have done and all you give back. And to our uh, loyal listeners on the Walker webcast, thanks for joining us today. And we'll be back next week with another one. Thank you, Richard, very much. Thank you, Willie. Enjoy the time. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye.